This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, I'd prepared some notes to talk about, but mostly I want to restrict my comments to a very little amount of time so that we can hear from the panelists who all have wonderful presentations. Um, I called the panel, We Want You Here, um, How Can We Help You Thrive?, and it's sort of, to me, reminiscent of, the, of what um, Shirley Malcolm said this morning about instead of saying attrition, saying failed, failed ability to retain. And so turning it on a positive moving forward. Um, I'd also like to say that uh, um, I've learned a lot in this organization process, and several of you have commented about the, the well-organized nature of this roundtable, and I would like to credit, I'm not going to try by names, but it has been, as a participant who is new to this, um, it has been a very democratic, gradual, consensual kind of advance in organizing topics and finding speakers, things like that. It has been a, a real pleasure, and I think the credit goes to, the, to Susan and her staff and the members of the steering committee. Thank you, Susan. I think, uh, speaking for myself, uh, thinking about mentoring, I usually think about mentoring of students or mentoring about junior faculty who are in the tenure pipeline. But I became convinced quickly um, about the importance of mentoring across the career stage from undergraduate times to graduate times to first job to tenure, the tenure uh, race, and then to full professor or beyond or even emeritus. Emerita. Um, so that I think that the, the group collectively covers a big part of the range. Um, but I, I hope that you're, many of you come to this with lots of experience in research about mentoring, in research about uh, support networks and so forth. But for those of us who come to it with just wanting to mentor, wanting to help, um, I'm learning a lot. And I imagine that you are all too. Um, we have a wonderful set of panelists for this panel um, who come from different campuses, each of which has uh, a, a successful programming in mentoring uh, women and, uh, and underrepresented minority faculty. And I think together, in this sense of no one size fits all, um, that they will present options for mentoring programs that, have been very, that continue to be very successful. Um, so I'd like to begin by introducing... Um, Susan Drangely, who is, uh, um, I lost it, the Director of Office for Faculty Diversity at UCLA, and she's going to talk about the UCLA Council of Advisors providing support beyond the department of research, but also more practice and application of the research. I also wanted to mention that, that uh, I think I think it was Susan's comment about that many of the people who are represented in your bibliography have are here. Um, that have published on these kinds of things. And I think you'll see that the people who are presenting today have also made contributions of that sort. So I'm really excited. Susan? Okay, we're going to get the this, this slides up. Um, I'm going to talk about the UCLA Council of Advisors. And this is a, a program that might be a little bit different than what 
you're thinking about in terms of a general mentoring program. Um, so this is one practical example. Um, I think we have a series of presenters in, in this panel that are going to show different kinds of examples, and I think there's a lot of ways to do this, and sometimes you need more than one. So giving a little bit of background about uh, why did we start the Council of Advisors, back in 2007 uh, we did a survey of assistant professors at UCLA, and 42% did not have a mentor. And of, of uh, the ones who did not have a mentor, 56% said they would like to have one. And in physical sciences, only 25% of the respondents had a mentor. And then across the whole uh, group, those who had mentors and who didn't, 32% said it would be helpful to have a mentor outside of their department. So given that kind of... Uh, Feedback. We started thinking about what would be what would be useful in terms of a mentoring program. Um, the other impetus for the program was from our uh, CAP committee on campus and also the vice chancellor for academic affairs, because a lot of people were coming through for promotion and people were saying, you know, why didn't this person have better mentoring? Why, you know, they were seeing things in the in the file that could have been rectified if it caught earlier. So those were the two reasons we started this. The goal of this program is, is very narrow. So you can, you can look at the model of the program and you can think of how to apply the model in different ways, but just keep in mind that this is a very narrowly focused program and it's really to guide assistant professors to advance to the associate professorship. So that's, that's the goal. And it was intended as a supplement to mentoring provided in the department. So it's assuming mentoring is provided in the department. And uh, what we do is uh, we match assistant professors with one or two full professors outside of their department. And we try to match with one former member of CAP. So at the end, I'll, I'm going to talk a little bit about quality and how I don't really have a lot of quality control on this, but matching with two people was an attempt at quality control. So, so that if you got, you know, if one was giving you one kind of advice, maybe the other one would give you different advice, and by matching uh, one who was a former member of CAP and then another full professor, the person who had been on CAP should know very well what's being looked at for the advancement process. So, so that was the thinking behind it. Uh, the practicality of it is that I can't always match with two, and I can't always match with a former member of CAP. So let me tell you just a little bit about how the program works. Um, we recruit about once or twice a year through email, flyers. We ask department chairs to uh, let people know. And we also, I also encourage my Council of Advisors advisors to recruit people. Um, out, assistant professors send in a form, and then they are matched, as I said, with people outside the department. Though I do try to keep in the same... In the same okay. Field matching is an issue with this program. The reason we don't match with people in your department is because those are the people who are going to vote on your tenure case. So that means single schools like law or 
nursing. I have to match with somebody outside the school completely. In bigger schools, school of medicine, I match with people in a different part of the school of medicine, for example. In the sciences, I try to match with someone else in, in the sciences, but not in your exact same area. Oh, so in addition, uh, so that's how the matching happens. When they get together, there's a little agreement form people are supposed to fill out that talks about the duration of the relationship, how often they're going to meet, and what the goals are. And I usually have two uh, uh, luncheons per year. In the fall, I do what I consider an in-service training for advisors to talk about how this program works and to kind of give each other um, tips about how to do this better. Sometimes I bring in a speaker, which uh, Dr. Crosby was my speaker this year. And then in the spring, we do a celebratory lunch where the advisors and the advisees come. Uh, We have a big lunch. I give out awards. I recognize advisors who uh, have been nominated by their advisees as doing an outstanding job. We recognize people if they have uh, uh, gotten tenure. So... Okay, so another kind of mentoring that we do at UCLA, I consider it group mentoring. And my definition of group mentoring is probably not uh, everybody else's, but it really is just about getting people together in a room on a topic of common interest, and then I make sure that there's small group discussion as well as large group discussion. I usually have a panel. A lot of times I'll have a panel who are people from my Council of Advisor program. So we do two of these a year on the academic personnel review process. We've also done uh, one on balancing work and life as an assistant professor, which was really quite well received. So in terms of the program growth, we started out in 2009. Uh, You can see 43 advisees, 62 advisors. And then by 2013, you can see the growth. Now this uh, column over here, 40 of those are are due to uh, Dr. John Hyatt, who is here. And he personally recruited people from the School of Medicine. So thank you very much. That was a big boost to the program. Now, in terms of who is participating, um, this is what my current, okay, it's not the current pool. So the N is 98. This is every advisee who's been in the program since the start of the program to, to now. So I don't have, they're not all active currently, but this was the, the gender breakdown. Now, what you'll see is that we're overrepresented by women. Um, If you look at the campus statistics for assistant professors and assistant professors in residence, that's only 40% women. Yet the people coming into this program, I'm getting 64% women. Now, if you look at the advisor breakdown, you can can see, like, you know, this is like an eye test, okay? (laughs) You can can see that it's the reverse of... uh, of the other group. But still, even with this, women are overrepresented because our full professors are 25, about 25% women on campus. Now, in terms of looking at the race and ethnicity, so this is the advise, advisee pool. And again, you can see uh, the, the breakdown here. But then if I show you the advisor pool, you know, you can see the difference, right? And and so one of the the questions or uh, requests I'm always getting is people want to be matched 
with the same gender, or they want to be matched with somebody of their same race and ethnicity. But given the pools that I have to work with, this becomes impossible. Now, I think that, it, as we said earlier, it doesn't always have to be that your mentor you know, uh, looks exactly like you, but it's more about some other uh, underlying uh, you know, uh, qualities and, and the ability to mentor across those lines. So in terms of the status, so this probably will be the most interesting slide to you. Um, when I looked at the people who have been in the program and then where they are now, uh, I still have 66% um, people are in the program, 2% of change series. So that would be, and the other thing, if you have an N of 98, these percentages are pretty much raw numbers, okay? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so uh, two people change series. They are no longer um, on the latter uh, track. Um, in terms of the ones who left the program, some of those are people who left because they were receiving adequate mentoring in their department and they didn't feel they needed the program anymore, and others left because they were not receiving the mentoring they wanted or they, they had a negative experience. Um, 8% resigned from UCLA. Uh, of that, I looked at who those were, and seven, it was seven women and uh, one man, and half of those are from School of Medicine. Um, and then the, the ones that were promoted, that's 11%. So let me just see. There was another thing in here. So, oh, and of the ones who resigned, none were in STEM. And of the ones who were promote, promoted, four were in STEM and three were in medicine. So last month I did a survey of the um, 98 98 people who have been in the program. We got a 51% response rate. It was more overwhelmingly female in terms of the response rate. And one of the questions here, how valuable has your participation in the Council of Advisors been for you? And the, you know, the majority, valuable to very valuable. There was another question on the, the survey, are you receiving adequate mentoring at UCLA? This was an open-ended response question, and 59% said yes, 31% said no, and then there was about 9% half and half. So I looked a little further at those responses, and a, a lot of the negative responses related to poor or absent man mentoring at the department level. So you have to understand, these people are already in the Council of Advisors program. Now, some of them have dropped out of the program, but uh, the people responding here are people who have been in the program one to two years, and then also people who had left. That was the majority of the responders. And so the complaints or the, the negative response tended to be about mentoring at the department level being absent. There was also some response about needing mentoring on work and life and gender equity issues, especially related to female faculty. Uh, there were some comments about senior faculty being too busy to mentor or review grant proposals, uh, even if the person had a K award. So this was like at the department level. And then I did get uh, some response about 
um, the advisors in the program not being knowledgeable about racial or sexual diversity issues. So, you know, going back to my group of advisors, you know, in this predominantly uh, white and male, and then maybe not having uh, the sensitivity at, at times to other issues. So that was what they were saying. Now, in terms of what was the most valuable topic, well, this is no surprise. The program is to help you advance. So, you know, they're doing a pretty bang-up job over here, and that's, you know, people are getting the most benefit from that. However, all of these other topics are being talked about. This, this slide just shows if they thought that was the most important advice they received. So they're all being talked about. The most important advice most people are saying is the, the promotion and tenure. In terms of the frequency of the meetings, uh, people don't meet that often in this program. They're meeting like once or twice a year. However, 78% felt they were getting, um, that the number of meetings was about right. And then 58% also said they received some advisement by email. So even though they might not be meeting face-to-face so often, possibly they're getting additional advisement by email. When I looked at the question about how often do you meet with your department mentor, uh, 80% were saying they only met quarterly with the department mentor. And then 16% monthly, 4% weekly. So um, one of the things I see from all this is really how thinking about how to boost the mentoring culture at UCLA, how to really get more of this going on and how to help people understand how to be a good mentor. Um, okay, so in, in, of the people who are in the Council of Advisors and who responded to the survey, 74% are now receiving departmental mentoring. If you compare this to my old 2007 uh, survey, you can see that those numbers are, are less. So it's either, it could, you could think of it that these people are actively seeking out mentoring, they're highly motivated, or the Council of Advisors, advisors are saying, you better get a department mentor. Okay, so I think there's a little bit of both happening. Uh, this is my last slide. So in terms of challenges, the matching process, I have a new appreciation for people who, who do run dating services. Okay, <laughs> that the matching process takes a lot of time. There's a lot of back and forth. When I first started doing this, I was naive, and I thought, oh, I'll just match people, and it'll work out. But now there's a lot of back and forth where I ask, How do you, what do you think of these two? What do you think of this one? You know, like go back and forth until I get uh, everybody to say, yeah, this sounds like it's going to work. So that's very time-consuming. The demographic matching issue, I showed you the pie charts. There's no way that I can make that happen if you want to have demographic matching. Field issues. I'm matching you with somebody outside your field. A lot of the questions and, and things people want would be from somebody in their field. So this is a supplemental kind of program, and if they're not getting the departmental mentoring that they need, then they uh, talk to me about you know, having these field issues, that they'd like to be with somebody uh, who knows their field better. Quality of advisors is an unknown. That's something I'm going to think about, how to address that, because right now people volunteer to be advisors, and I just try to get feedback from advisees, et cetera, and then work with that. But it's not like I'm firing people from the program. Um, and then this issue of obtaining feedback and follow-up. 
it's very hard to get feedback from the advisees. We ask usually a couple times a year. We have to track people down. I have to call them on the phone repeatedly. You know, I mean, we're trying to help you, but they don't. People are very busy, so that's that's part of it. Um, I will say this too that I think that the people in my in the program are a little bit bifurcated. I think there's people who are. Uh, you might call them stars who saw this program and said, this is going to be great, but they don't really need the the help, but they're in the program anyway. And then you've got other people who have been kind of um, told, like by their chair or by senior faculty or someone, you know, you really need to go in this program. And sometimes there are people who are already in trouble uh, by the time they get to the program. So um, the, those are sometimes harder to track down, and it's harder to get them to actually meet with their advisor, et cetera. So anyway, thank you. I, I did want to say something very briefly. Um, when I was thanking people for the organization, of course, I omitted my friend and mentor, Yolanda Moses. <laughs> And her right-hand person, Felicia Garrett. So, not intentionally. Um, Okay, our next speaker is Mitch Feldman, Mitchell Feldman, who is Associate Vice Provost of Academic Affairs and the Director of the UCSF Faculty Mentoring Program and Professor of Medicine at UCSF. And he's titled his talk, Mentoring Matters, the UCSF Faculty Mentoring Program. Thank you so much. <clears throat> really happy to be here. Usually when I'm uh, talking about mentoring, uh, I, I've never been in a room with so many people who are so enthusiastic about mentoring. I feel like I landed in the right place. So thank you. It's really, really delightful uh, to be here. So I'm going to give a, an overview of what we've thought, thought about what we've been doing in the area of faculty mentoring at uh, UCSF over the last five or six years. So... Like Susan was saying, we also started with a needs assessment back in 2001. Uh, there was a, a climate survey of faculty. It found that most, basically faculty felt that there wasn't enough access to mentoring, and the mentoring that they could, could have access to wasn't very good. So there was quite a bit of dissatisfaction around mentorship. There was a uh, response to that by, at the time, Chancellor Bishop, a task force that came up with recommendations about how to address this, uh, this issue. And there was a Chancellor's Council on Faculty Life that was formed to to try to uh, address and fix a lot of the issues around faculty life at UCSF, including faculty mentoring. There was a search for a director of faculty mentoring, and and I was happy that Sally Marshall found me uh, to, and really gave me a lot of latitude and freedom to work with the CCFL, to work with Sally, to sort of step back and think about how do we fix this problem? How do we address dissatisfaction around both the access to mentorship and the quality of mentoring uh, at UCSF. One of the first things we did was uh, reach out to department chairs and division chiefs and ask them to appoint mentoring facilitators in their group, because our program, as I'll show you, is for all faculty. From eight, you know, We have five series uh, at UCSF, you know, HS Clinical up to the latter rank, and we wanted to design a program that was going to address the, fa- the mentoring needs of all of these faculty, not just one segment. Uh, And so we asked the chairs to appoint these mentoring facilitators in the department who could be the champions, the leaders, um, uh, and also to help me, because I couldn't go into each of these departments and do the matching. We needed help on the ground. 
And our goal was to be sure that all junior faculty, that is all assistant level faculty, had an identified career mentor. And I'll tell you more, uh, more about, about that in a moment. So I, I was fortunate to have spent 2011 and 12 in, in Japan doing actually research on mentorship and academic medicine there, supported by Fulbright. And my wife and I were taking a walk in a garden there and came upon this sign, sort of puzzled, scratched my head for a few moments, because actually also in Japan, usually you're told exactly where to go. Um, we are presented with a choice. And like so many, I think, also of our mentees, it was a good choice either way. It was beautiful in either direction. Uh, but we had to make a choice, and it occurred to me this is, an, this is an, an, a good metaphor for the role of a career mentor, which really helps the, the role of that person is to help the mentee think about what are their values, you know, what do they care about, how do they want to make a difference in their life and in their career, and also their personal values, and how do you balance those personal professional values and then start making choices in terms of career direction. You know, there's so much focus in our environment on making choices, making decisions about what grant you want to apply for, the paper, things you want to be doing, but very little time spent on reflecting on what are the values that underlie those choices. So for me, one of the key roles of that career mentor is to be a, a safe place where mentees, junior faculty, can be reflecting on what do they care about, how do they want to make a difference, and therefore what do they want to be working on uh, in their career. So our focus is career mentoring. But like many, uh, many else of you have said, it really takes a team uh, to mentor faculty. So while we, our program pays attention to and does the pairing for the junior faculty with a career mentor, we expect and talk a lot about and try to support these junior faculty in developing a mentoring team. And we actually spend a fair bit of time thinking about you know, because we can say they need a mentor. Well, what do we mean by a mentor? What are the roles here? Uh, and in working with uh, several other folks at UCSF have come up with these three types. A career mentor, again, which is really focused on career development, setting goals, uh, thinking about advancement and promotion and the challenges there, how to survive in an academic setting, uh, helping with networking, but not necessarily being the expert in that mentee's area of scholarship or research. Uh, usually they should be in the department, not necessarily, but usually, but they can be outside that scope of, of research. There is a researcher, scholarly mentor there who's got to be part of that team. And then co-mentors who bring in methodologic expertise, other content area. They're more than advisors because they're invested in the long-term career development of that mentee. So they're part of the team, but the intensity, at least, of the, um, the time spent with that co-mentor is going to be less. And often this is a mentor in a different department. Uh, as Susan was saying, you know, we think about sort of the cis and trans mentoring. Uh, I'm, a, I'm not a chemist, but now there's a bunch of people who actually know what I'm talking about when I say that. And, you know, so to look for that trans mentor who may bring in that different perspective on your career might be the co-mentor outside of your department. I knew it would be after lunch, so I don't have a lot of slides with a lot of numbers on them, mostly pictures. Um, but I want to just give you a snapshot of who our target group uh, is for the faculty mentoring program. So we've got, uh, back in 2011-12, a total of 837 assistant professors who are at 51% or more. So they need to be not just part-time to be, uh, participate in our program. Um, you can see the distribution across the different departments and, again, the, these five uh, series. 
and I have the gender uh, breakdown. I wasn't able to get any more granular data to present to you today. Uh, and, and in 2011, 2012, we were able to get back verification from the departmental mentoring facilitator overall that 91% of these assistant professors had an identifiable career mentor. So we don't, I don't just ask, we don't just ask departments to please do this and then say, have you done it? We ask them to share their data with us. That is to, we have a very laborious process with Excel spreadsheets going back and forth with departments and divisions, um, asking them to show us their mentoring pairs. But it's really a lot more than making sure we're matching people. You know, ha having, it's very, very important, and we send out actually letters uh, welcoming when new assistant professors are hired, welcoming them to UCSF, and um, uh, informing them about the faculty mentoring program, CCing their mentoring facilitator so that they, from the day one, should be paired or getting in the process of being paired with a career mentor. But there are many, many other things that we thought that we need to do in order to support this culture of mentorship, to make sure that these relationships and these mentoring teams are working well and that the culture and the system around them is supporting that. So there's four things I thought I'd briefly share with you uh, in terms of how we've thought about trying to support a culture of mentorship at uh, UCSF. It has to do with recognition of mentoring, uh, some training, faculty development and training for both mentors and mentees, uh, support for networking, uh, and then some sense of assessment and feedback, and this is an area where I think we, have, you know, we all have a lot more work to do. So in terms of recognition, and I don't know how common this is across the other UCs, one thing that's been symbolically very, very important is that mentoring counts. So it's mentoring and teaching when you come up for advancement promotion at UCSF. So we look at that. Um, we don't have a great way yet of assessing the quality of mentorship, and we're working on that now with some, with some feedback and some um, evaluation forms. But, you know, we're asking committees to take mentoring into account. We're asking a faculty when they come up to make sure they have letter coming in from mentees supporting and to talking about their mentorship. Again, symbolically, I think this is terribly important, showing the value that the university places on faculty doing mentorship. We've also created uh, awards. I think awards are good. They also recognize people for the time and the work that they're putting in uh, to mentoring. We just had our meeting yesterday, actually, to pick our seventh uh, Lifetime Achievement and Mentoring Award winner. Uh, so I shouldn't share it with you before I share it with folks back home. Um, but I can show you last year's winner was Dr. Art Weiss. Um, it, we had, I, I will say, it's become maybe the most prestigious, certainly one of the most prestigious awards on campus. We, uh, this year had, you know, we've gotten usually about a dozen to 20 incredibly high quality nominations. It makes you feel really good to be at the university to read through all of these incredible packets. And at this celebration last year, we had four generations of mentors there. Art Weiss's, um, there's uh, Ephraim Engelman, who's 102 years old. I think I think founded the Division of Rheumatology. His mentee, Dr. Stobo, who was the mentor for art, and his mentees. So it was just a fantastic celebration to have folks talking about career. You know, who mentored you, and how do you pass it on there through four generations? The other area, of course, is like teaching. You know, some people are just naturally better at mentoring, better in communicating, you know, better communicators. Uh, but for all of us, we can all get better, and there, we need to be identifying what are the, what's the knowledge and skill set. Uh, to help improve both mentor skills and mentee skills. So we've done some of that, and I'll tell you briefly about this specific program, the Mentor Development Program, focused on training mentors up. 
So there are a variety of things that we do. And again, I have a, an opportunity just to give you a very quick snapshot. Hopefully, we'll have time to talk some more. Uh, I'm sure you all know that January is National Mentoring Month. I think it's also National Dry Cleaning Month and a few other things. But, um, but we took advantage of that because we thought it was a really nice opportunity to really get the word out again and support mentorship on campus. We do a variety of things. This is just one uh, little snapshot of some of the things that go on uh, during January. And again, some mentor training workshops, uh, leadership skill workshop this past year on mentoring. Uh, we do have a speed mentoring. You mentioned dating, and so there's speed dating. There are speed mentoring. Some of you may have been familiar with that. It's a nice way. Again, things to kind of get the word out, support mentor training, uh, and development of mentoring skills. We also actually, in our first, the UCSF's first uh, application for the, our initial application for the Clinical Translational Science Institute, we were one of the first 12 sites, was actually in that a, a program to train mentors. Say, if we're going to have a new paradigm for how we're going to do science, we should think about a new way of training people how to be better and more effective mentors in this new way of thinking about how to do science that's going to be more cross-disciplinary, et cetera. So we created a mentor development program. We call our mentors and training MITs. These are generally the target are our late assistant, early associate professors, folks who are or mid-associate, folks who are transitioning from mentor mentee to mentor, although we've actually been open to for people across the spectrum, and that's also been quite enriching. Uh, we have, uh, it's five full half days, 10 case-based seminars. We really teach this in a case-based approach. I think that's the most effective way. And the topics for these uh, workshops uh, run the gamut from communicating more effectively with your mentee. We have a, had a fabulous session that Sharon uh, participated in on mentoring and diversity, where we had the MITs bring in their own cases, and Renee um, gave a fabulous talk at that, where the, the MITs brought in their own cases around diversity and mentoring. We also focus on you know, knowledge about how do you help your mentee get through the CHR process uh, and things like that. Networking is obviously a key role of an effective career mentor, and I think it's also something that the university on a larger level should be supporting, men mentoring, uh, networking across university. You know, how do I find my mentee, a mentor in this area? We've got, you know, more than 2,000 faculty. It's hard to figure that out, but I need, to, I need the resources as an effective mentor, or mentees need to, need to have those tools. So there's a couple of things we've done. One, we started a series called Meet the Mentor, um, Dr. Marshall has been one of our, one of our mentors here. We've done this uh, every year for the last number of years. These are small sessions where junior faculty have an opportunity to meet uh, leaders in, on campus, either in research or in other areas who they ordinarily probably wouldn't have the courage to like, send an email and say, will you sit down and meet with me? So it's kind of a, a mentoring opportunity uh, for them. We've also created a um, mentor consultation service uh, this has been living on the CTSI site, but it's open to all faculty at UCSF. Uh, there's a group of us who take turns being the mom for the month, that is the mentor of the month. Um, and we field questions from mentors and mentees about mentoring uh, conundrums and problems and issues. We also have profiles uh, at UCSF. I don't know if any other campuses have adopted profiles. 
um, that started at Harvard. And this is a way you can put in keywords and search and find folks who are doing work in a similar area. And we also have created a, a mentoring section on that so you can talk about what your own approach is to mentoring, who you're willing to mentor. So again, if I'm uh, mentoring somebody in an area that I can't find them a, an appropriate mentor, we can put in a keyword search and these names pop up. And finally, you know, we should be doing some program evaluation. And I think as academic centers, we should be contributing to the scholarship in this area uh, as well. So I'll just a little bit of data here. I'll just quickly just show you, I'm not going to spend time talking about some of the work we've done the last few years, both in evaluating our program and trying to contribute or disseminate what we've learned. This was a, a survey of all faculty where we found that having a mentor all, uh, was associated with greater academic self-efficacy, a sense that you kind of had the tools and the confidence that you were going to get promoted, and then higher satisfaction with time allocation at work compared to those faculty who at that time reported not having a mentor. We've done some evaluation of this mentor development program. Now, mind you, this is pre-post self-evaluation. So this is not level one data, but we have found over a, th a three-year period of time that people who go through this mentor training program, even three years out, have more confidence in their skills as a mentor, more confidence that they can be effective as a mentor. So I think that's some evidence that mentor training does make a difference in helping to improve skills or certainly confidence with your skills. We haven't asked their mentees yet what they think. So that's, that's, the next, uh, that's an important next step. We've also tried to define, so you know, we talk a lot about mentoring. We think we're teaching people how to be better mentors. But the truth is we don't really have a good sense of what, what really separates effective from ineffective mentors or good mentors from bad mentors. Uh, this was a study where we actually took letters of nomination from that Lifetime Achievement Award I, I showed you earlier with Art Weiss and the Four Generations and analyzed a couple of years of these letters of nomination to pull out the themes. What were their mentees saying about them? Why were they nominating them for, the, for this award? And looked at what, what, uh, what at least their mentees thought were the characteristics of good and effective uh, mentors. And it's stuff that you know, makes sense, accessibility, uh, focusing on professional personal balance was interesting. It was one of the five things uh, that came up. Um, a, sh a sharing of values, things like that. I think this article is in your packet, actually. And most recently, we published something in Academic Medicine in January, again, looking at successful and failed mentoring relationships, trying to understand why, seem, from the perspective of both the mentor and the mentee, it's another qualitative study, why do some mentoring relationships succeed and others fail? And finally, just uh, we, we did go back. I mentioned the survey back in 2001 that kind of started this whole process. We recently had uh, repeated that climate survey. And, man, I was holding my breath until I saw the results here because, you know, it's of all faculty, it's hard, hard to know whether all the work we've been doing over the last six or seven years has made a difference. Um, but we did find that there's significantly higher satisfaction with, from faculty now about both the accessibility of mentorship and the quality of mentorship. Uh, on campus, and found that faculty with mentors showed more satisfaction with their career uh, and, uh, and, and with the university, with being at UCSF, than those of similar rank who didn't have mentors. Now, mind you, this is all, almost all junior faculty now say they have a mentor in line with our data, but this is all, this is also associate and full professors that we're asking. And then 50% of faculty with mentors report that it's been very important in making their experience at UCSF positive. 
Again, you know, we were talking over lunch. There aren't many, or maybe there's one, but there aren't very many good randomized clinical trials, and there probably won't be uh, as to whether mentoring matters. But I think this kind of qualitative uh, data is quite convincing, at least uh, to me. Uh, And interestingly, in this climate survey, women and URM faculty are more likely to report that mentoring hasn't been important to them in their career uh, at UCSF. Again, all of this is sort of suggestive, interesting data and needs more uh, exploration. So, you know, what we don't know and what's clear from the survey, a rising tide may not lift all boats equally. And I know that from looking across different departments and also for different groups on campus, there are different needs that I think we've been able to address better or not so well. Uh, in a program that's really trying to get at almost a 1,000 people, it's harder to be more specific and address the needs of some uh, certain groups, which um, uh, we need to be doing. So there was uh, one question in the, fac- in the climate survey, would like to have a mentor but don't currently. So that's 16% of faculty. You can say that's not too bad, but you know, we should be able to do better. Any faculty member who wants, and some of these, again, mind you, may be full professors who are still feeling like they want to find a mentor and and feel like they need help. I don't know, but uh, you know, this is something to address. But we have found that HS clinical faculty are primarily clinician and clinician educator faculty are still often left out of mentoring, and that, at least on our campus, is a very important problem for us to address. And interesting, associate and full professors, uh, steps one through five, uh, were also reporting that they wanted to have a mentor. I will say when I first started the program, many people gave me the advice and said, you should start with the department chairs and the professors, and <laughs> the rest will follow. And there's some, maybe some truth in that. And I think we certainly need more granular data for women URM and for faculty in different series to try to figure out how to better target and tailor what we have to offer for these faculty. And I'll just leave you with one quote. This is from the business world. Uh, but So why do we do this? You know, why focus on mentoring? This is from Jim Collins' book. Many of you probably read From Good to Great. And he says, for the, in the end, it's impossible to have a great life unless it's a meaningful life. And it's very difficult to have a meaningful life without meaningful work. Thank you. So um, I'm going to talk about a program that's been going on for about 20 years. And in the last few years, we have uh, tried to make it be relevant to STEM And we have uh, essentially targeted women in STEM, but it could be underrepresented men. And it could be men who are white men as well. Our our main focus has been on feminists. And by a feminist, we would take anybody who thinks that women get to be people just as men get to be people. So here you can see one of the uh, conferences that we've had recently. Now, I started out with looking at a large body of research. My, my students and I looked at a lot of research. We saw that there were over 3,000 publications since 2000, and over 1,000 of them were empirical, not just hortatory about how great uh, uh, mentoring is. And I now think that uh, Mitch Feldman has maybe done 500 of those, but um, <laughs> a lot of other people have been joining in, my, myself and several of the other people in the room included. But one thing that we know from this research is mentoring is beneficial. You guys don't need to be convinced of that. You're sitting in this room. You already believe it. So do these people who were part of a mentoring session. Okay, it's beneficial not only with soft measures like how satisfied do you feel, self-reported satisfaction, but it's shown to be beneficial with hard measures, persistence, advancement, salary. And we've heard data 
from Mitch and other data that we heard that shows that if you are mentored, you are more likely to get advanced, you are more likely to persist, you are less likely to be one of the people who has been dropped out. And there are, uh, there's a meta-analysis that shows that this is true in academe as well as in the business world. But most of the data that we have, and Mitch uh, referenced this, out of those 1,000 studies, more than 1,000 studies, I was able to uncover only one study that was a true randomized experiment. So why should it be a problem that it is correlational? And that study, the only experiment was by Francine Blau, and it, re- and it related to women in economics departments. Why should it be a problem? Well, there was a study done back in 1995, Green and Bauer, where they looked at graduate students who were coming into a program, and they identified high-flying graduate students and graduate students who were not as high-flying. And the graduate students who were high-flying went and sought out mentors. But whether they got mentors or not, they succeeded. So we have that plausible alternative explanation, that variable C explanation, for even our longitudinal data, our beautiful data, that would be, oh my gosh, well, maybe the same people who are getting mentors are the same people who would succeed. Maybe it's something about what you start with, that grit that you start with. Certainly when we heard Desiree, where, you know, you have grit, right? You ended up getting mentors, but you, whether you had mentors or not, you're going to succeed. You had grit. Okay, so I started to be interested in doing a randomized experiment, and then for ethical reasons, we discovered that it wasn't going to work. So we're involved in a paired comparison study, not a true experiment, but a kind of a quasi-experiment. And it's based on what we've been doing for 20 years called the NAGS Heart Conferences. So Yolanda Moses has participated in a NAGS Heart Conference in Boston, a multi-day one. Ingrid Parker, who's at the back of the room, participated in a one-day one. What we have essentially are mentoring circles. If you are interested in feminism and you think you might have not have enough senior women to go around, you put those senior women in a circle with some junior women. But you don't just have the senior women dispensing the wisdom and information. It's everybody mentoring each other in a highly structured fashion. We believe that um, our method is very status attenuating, and it attempts to be, very self-consciously attempts to be status attenuating. It attempts to normalize problems, and it attempts to be a way of teaching people how to do group problem solving. So people show up with a dilemma. So you don't show up with a solution. You don't show up with your PowerPoint. You don't show up with your latest invention and patent. You show up with a dilemma, something you've been chewing on, and you don't have the answer to it. Like, oh, my gosh, how do we retain more people of color in my department? Or, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do with the fact that I feel completely disrespected by my boss? Or whatever it is. Everybody shows up with a dilemma, and usually these dilemmas are on a certain theme. I'll come back to that. And then all participants have equal time. So you could have the chair of the department or the dean of the school, and you could have the most lowly assistant professor or postdoc, but everybody's going to have the same 30 minutes in which she is going to talk about her, her problem. And then you have a facilitator. So the facilitator will say, oh, my goodness, here we are in Yolanda's half hour, and Faye seems to be doing all the talking. Yolanda, is this giving you what you want? So you have a facilitator whose role it is to step outside the group dynamic. 
Here you can see we had um, one of our NAGS hearts. Uh, that was in Amherst, Mass. We have 8 to 14 participants who will come together about a theme, and those themes will always be phrased as a question or a dilemma. So one of them a long time ago was, how do we make mentoring succeed? And that spawned, that one nags heart spawned lots and lots of years of research for me. Everybody is present for all parts. So let's say you had nine participants, and they came in on a Thursday evening. They would all stay for Friday and Saturday, and then they'd all leave on Saturday evening. Or if you could only have a one day, everybody's really, really busy, and you did a one day, instead of some people coming and going, I mean, we are all pretty much the same group that showed up here at 9 o'clock is still here, but some people had to go, some people came late, and so on. For this very small residential way of being together, very intimate way, everybody is there for the whole time. And then we have work sessions. So, for example, if there were 12 participants, you would have... Uh, four different work sessions. So you might have 8 a.m. to 10 a.m., a little break, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., lunch, then two work sessions in the afternoon. And you have breakout time. There's a strong and explicit rule that is really different from what we do in our everyday life, and this comes from the National Training Labs, T Groups, Benny Benison Chin, 1947, and that is No White Lies. So if, if, you know, in your everyday life, somebody comes to you and says, gosh, how do I look in this? <laughs> you know, d- does this jacket make me look fat? <laughs> and you say, no, no, that's a great jacket. You look terrific. And you're thinking, oh, my gosh, I hope she never wears that jacket outside, right? So no white lies. People don't have to tell all the truth, but any words that come out of their mouths have to be the truth. We have a lot of breakout time also, and in the breakout time, you can be, go back to being polite, but during the time that you're in session, you are not gonna, um, you're not going to tell any lies. We try to do it in beautiful settings. Uh, that's my sister's house at Martha's Vineyard. The tree is now bigger, but it's a, a very nice house. Okay, so we are trying to influence outcomes. We do this because we like to be together. It's really wonderful to get an excuse to go to Martha's Vineyard, But really what we're trying to do is to increase a sense of efficacy and a sense of belongingness. Because efficacy and belongingness, as some of you have already referenced, leads to persistence. So Sue Rosser has done a lot of work showing, and so have many other people, showing that in STEM in particular, women and underrepresented minorities have less of a sense of belongingness than men and whites. And also the sense of efficacy. You have to take pains to create a sense of efficacy. And we think it's not just efficacy about your own situation, but it's efficacy, as Mitch was saying, we want to have meaningful work. We want to have meaningful lives. It's the sense that we are making some progress, however glacial. You know, here's Sheila O'Rourke all these years, keeping on going, keeping on going, keeping on going, even if sometimes from one year to the next the percentage dial is just going a little bit. So you have to have that persistence, that sense that it's going to matter. So we think that efficacy and belongingness are promoted, and so will persistence be promoted. And here you see, um, I had a good tan, and then you see a bunch of young postdocs from the UC and also University of Hawaii 
who are here at a beautiful home in Saratoga. At each work session, lasting about two hours, we have three participants. Each has a half hour. Now, you're all scientists. You know that that doesn't add up to two hours. So we have participant one, participant two, participant three, and then we have what we call bucket time. That is a technical term. Bucket time is when you pick up the strains that haven't been uh, picked up in any conversation. So let's say it's Manuela's half hour, and she's talked for 20 minutes, and then we're all giving her feedback, and I'm in the middle of saying something really profound, and the buzzer goes off. I get to finish my sentence, but no more than that. And that's part of our very self-conscious status attenuating. Because we all know that when you're the big gorilla in the room, you keep on talking. Well, that buzzer keeps going, da-da, da-da, da-da. You can't keep talking. So there are a lot of brilliant ideas that don't get finished because they got cut off by the buzzer, and then we pick them up in bucket time. We're, we are having our outcome measures of uh, self-efficacy and belongingness in the paired comparison studies that we're doing. I don't have enough data yet to tell you that they really are data, but I can tell you that during our breakout times, we have a lot of bonding. We, uh, this is in Nepal, where we were teaching, we, we had to talk and trek, and we were teaching our Sherpas how to do the electric slide. <laughs> and this is a yoga session that was during one of the breakouts. Uh, this is lobster races. Those are, in case you can't see it, those are lobsters. Here's a, a very famous person in psychology, Janet Spence, the first woman to really talk a lot about women's achievement um, in in psychology, and she had the Spence measure of uh, uh, the Taylor measure of anxiety. Here we are back on Martha's Vineyard. We've gone shopping. That's a very important scientific enterprise. Shopping. You need to do it. Our anecdotal evidence, um, Stacy Blake-Beard has been collecting evidence for us, a friend of Yolanda's, and my collaborator, Peg Stockdale. Um, we've done a pilot study at Southern Illinois University, and we're doing another one right now. And our anecdotal evidence shows that having uh, this intervention, one day, two days, three days, four days, that indeed it does increase a, self of a sense of efficacy and belongingness. And here's a little bit more anecdotal evidence. Sitting right there is, some of you may recognize her, Bev Tatum, president of Spellman, author of Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria? And Bev is sitting um, at, at one of the NAGS hearts in which she participated. Abby Stewart, very well known to many people as well. Um, and I was younger then. I had no gray hair. And here is Kathy McCartney who on October 19th will be the 11th president of Smith College. She will be inaugurated as the 11th president of Smith College. Kathy went, overcame, as so many people in this room have done. Kathy has grit. Kathy got to Yale University. Kathy was the first in her family to go to college. She went to Tufts. She went as a graduate, as a graduate student to Yale, where her major advisor was Sandy Scar, and where I had the pleasure of working a lot with her, too. And Kathy then went on to Harvard. Harvard decided they didn't really like her. She went on to the University of New Hampshire, and Harvard said, what a mistake we made. And she came back, and she was the first woman dean of the School of Education. And as I say, on October 19th, she'll be the 11th president of Smith College. I think Kathy wouldn't say that Nags Heart changed her life, but it was one uh, time when it made a difference to her, and it was a, a Nags Heart that she had helped to organize. So going back to my title, 
you, you've seen all these pictures of all these people smiling. Of course they're smiling. They're shopping on Martha's Vineyard. Who wouldn't smile in that circumstance? But what they're talking about in the uh, sessions very often are very difficult issues. And I know from Susan's program at UCLA, and I know from what I've heard about Mitch's program now, that one of the things that you have to do if you're going to have a successful mentoring program is that you have to talk about the bad stuff. You cannot solve the problems if you pretend that everything is easy. There will be bad, difficult problems in some relationships, and some relationships are going to be great, but there still is too slow of an advance in the real world. We are encountering real problems all the time. Being able to be open and honest with each other is the greatest gift, according to the... um, According to the surveys that we've collected, the sense of belonging and efficacy comes from being able to speak honestly of problems with other people and not be judged for having named a problem, but then join forces with other people for solutions. And I feel that that's one of the things that's happening in this kind of a a meeting that we have here. We're not telling our deepest, darkest secrets because we're all sitting at these uh, big tables But we are acknowledging that there's really a lot of work we still have to do, and yet we're all prepared to do it together. So thank you very much for your attention. Okay, so I was really interested to hear all about your programs. One thing I was thinking about was whether you know anything about turnover in mentorship, so that when you um, appoint a mentor uh, to a mentee, when you pair them up, is it good to have that same pair go all the way through to tenure and or beyond, or is it better to switch them up? Do you look at feedback from the mentees about the, the match and then switch if it's not going well, or what kind of strategies do you have? I'll take it first and then pass it to the um, uh, people who have actually done more pairing. Um, part of the reason we went to a mentoring circle uh, model was because of a woman named Mac- uh, Ellen McCambly who had done research in the for-profit sector, and she found that um, sometimes it can be detrimental if there's a mismatch. So we figured in a circle where you're coming together for a few days, and you might join that, you might join a circle again that some of the same participants or you might not, you don't have the, you don't run the risk of the negative consequence, but you guys match people for long periods of time. So the Council of Advisors program at UCLA is only supposed to last a year. Like, that's the agreement that, you know, when people sign up. But what we found is that for the majority, people continue on. Um, Often they continue on until they're submitting their case or until they feel that they've gotten sufficient mentoring in their own department. So, um, I mean, I think one thing that distinguishes mentoring from other kinds of professional relationships is that the hope and the expectation is that it's longitudinal. So um, we, we would hope that with the assistant professors that they're paired with that mentor until they get promoted to associate <laughs> professor, and then we stop tracking. Some of those relationships will continue. Some will they'll become more colleagues or peers rather than mentor-mentee. Some, you know, clearly go on for 20 or 30 years still with that kind of relationship. Um, there are uh, often, you know, because they're just relationships, so there's often uh, conflict or problems or a mismatch. Because we will pair people for junior faculty when they come in. If they don't have an identified mentor, there hasn't been an organic relationship established. 
I think you know a, a, a mentor, a, 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 an assigned mentor, is better than no mentor at all, usually. Uh, which and but an organic relationship is better. So we will match, and sometimes those don't work. So one thing we also stress is that you don't have you're not signing on for life necessarily. Although we hope that this will be a longitudinal relationship. That part of the expectation is that yearly there's a discussion that goes on from mentor and mentee. It may be the relationship goes well, but the mentor has gotten busy, interests change, and so it makes sense on a yearly basis to have a discussion about what's working, what isn't working, should we sign up for another year, do we need to you know, change the parameters of the relationship. And the last thing is that that's where the role of the mentoring facilitator comes in as well, uh, where they can be called in, and sometimes there are actually difficult relationships and that facilitator can be a mediator or a go-between there uh, uh, if there are conflicts between mentor and mentee. So my question is about the incentives that you give to the mentors. And I heard recognition, awards, free lunch. Has anyone of you considered giving hard, cold cash? Um, did it work? Do you think it would work? What, how do we get some of our sort of less participatory faculty to sign on, particularly at a campus that doesn't have a huge faculty base that some of yours do? So, I mean, there are some mechanisms to support mentorship through grants and things like that, but for the most part, that's not how it's done. Uh, again, we do, the expectation is that mentoring is part of your job as a faculty member at UCSF. But it is important to think about and to explicitly have discussions, as we do in the Mentor Development Program, what are the rewards of mentorship? Uh, sometimes they're um, you know, concrete academic rewards. You, you know, as you move into that phase of your career, you move from first author to last author on papers. That's important for your own advancement promotion. But there are other aspects of, of the relational uh, issues, personal growth and professional growth through being a mentor that I think often goes unrecognized or unacknowledged. That's also part of the reward. You know, extending one's own network through the work of the mentees, potentially learning from your mentee. Maybe they're bringing in areas of methodologic or content area expertise that you don't have and allows you to extend your work into other areas. And then, of course, there's the whole Ericksonian gener you know, generativity thing where it feels good to help other people progress. But usually that's not enough to sustain the relationship over time. There needs to be some of these other things. But it takes work on the part of the mentor to spend some time reflecting on what are the, what are the rewards here for me in terms of re-upping the relationship over time as well. Um, so in terms of that reward structure, I mean, it has been suggested to me that we need to offer financial incentives for this, but that's really not something that's likely to happen anytime soon. Um, a lot of the people in the Council of Advisors program are very senior faculty members, and I also have some emeriti that are in the program, and there seems to be a kind of a core group who really want to do this, and they get intrinsic benefit from that, and they talk about you know, what they're learning from their mentees. So the other piece about trying to recruit people who maybe don't really want to do this, I mean, I think that's a little dicey. But I think that, for me, the issue going forward is how to get more of a culture of mentoring at UCLA, how to get it at the department level, how to get the chairs to uh, kind of uh, either assign people 
but then monitor whether or not things are going well and to try to build that up. I'm thinking about doing things like, you know, doing more of the, the training of mentors and having more programs and just try to get more people who want that uh, exposed to it, possibly, and maybe having that help the culture. So the, the distinction between intrinsic reward, I'm engaged in an activity that is so great and I want to do it because it's intrinsically rewarding and ec- extrinsic reward, I'm going to get some dollars or I'm going to get promoted or it's going to be in my evaluation file, I think has um, uh, been an issue that people have not been willing to hit head on. In the for-profit world, in many organizations, you don't get promoted promoted unless you have good mentoring that's happening in your division. And that's because mentoring helps the bottom line. Uh, We have not used incentives in the NAGSHART program. We have not used incentives except one extrinsic um, uh, incentive, which is that sometimes we publish books at proceedings out of our meetings. So if you have people who are hungry for publications and would like to be involved in some publications in an area of interest to them, we sometimes dangle that. We've had four or five or six books, maybe, that have come out in that way. But as Susan said, I think it's a little bit of a problem who you might get if you have too heavy of an extrinsic reward. I also think that the one holdup is time. If there were any way for us to relieve any time for anybody so that they could be engaged in doing mentoring, they will engage in mentoring. So in some departments at UCSC, sometimes people get a half a course credit or whatever if they're doing heavy-duty mentoring. People don't want the dollars. We wouldn't have enough dollars to make it make a difference. But if we can give somebody that time back, so that they can spend that time mentoring, that's what they really want. Hi, I'm Harry Green, and this year I'm the chair of UCAP. Um, And I think everybody in this room knows that in the merit and promotion system, the recommendations from UCAP, from CAP on all the campuses, is almost always accepted by the administration. The overrule is a very small percentage. So the more that we can get to cap in this aspect, the, the better it will be, I believe, in this thing. So I was struck by the UCLA presentation. Uh, have you thought about, or maybe you do, suggesting to the Committee on Committees of your campus and anybody's campus that maybe they should think about that when they're making their, suggest- making their appointments to, um, to cap? Uh, and I'm going to suggest that, actually, to the university committee on uh, committees for exactly the same reason. So um, just so I understand, what you're saying is that the committee on committees should recognize people who are participating and doing mentoring activities? and yeah, Just to, to add that as a significant right. parameter, when, I mean, they choose mostly the senior faculty, et cetera, et cetera. But, right. And I've not served on COC, so I don't know beyond that. But uh, it seems to me that f- from the discussions we've had here, 
that the mentoring process is a very powerful one, and I think it's very unevenly applied across the campuses. Uh, but it would be one way, I think, it, especially for the members of, of CAP, to be chosen as people who have been successful mentors because that means they're going to be attentive to this kind of problem when the dossiers come across there. That, that's a good idea, and it's also something that I can suggest to the vice chancellor for academic personnel, who is one of the co-sponsors on our Council of Advisors. And I forgot to mention, but in this last year, the vice chancellor uh, looked at who was participating as advisors and asked for that information as some of the different files were coming up for, for review. So I think that she's starting to consider or look at whether people are participating in the program and um, wanting to reward them you know, for that. Good idea. Screen. So I, I, I have a question for Faye and another one for Susan. So in your groups, when you do those special meetings and you do all that bonding, do you keep going? Do these people stay connected so that some of this mentorship could could drive into sponsorships because you, you know during the career if you have other people out there that are aware of you and can help you it can make a difference even in grant applications so yes people do stay connected and they connect people to other people so over um, the first ones of these meetings and they weren't uh, emphasizing STEM until recently mm-hmm. um, people knew each other I had a name up on the board um, a person whom Yolanda knows very well, Stacy Blake Beard. Stacy and I got to know each other through this, and we ended up publishing together. Um, mm-hmm. I ended up writing letters of recommendation for her as she was going up the ladder. Exactly. Uh, other people did too. Um, people end up being advocates for each other. They end up sharing information with each other at the Academy of. Um, uh, Business. I, I'm blocking on the name of it. Uh, there was a whole group who who would regularly schedule reunions, where they would get fortified because at that time there were very few women who were part of that academy. They would get fortified and then go into their meetings and and but they would have an evening together. So there is a very very long uh, organic continuity and networking. Yeah. Yes. So the other question is for Susan, and I'm just curious, when you call back your mentees to try to find out how things are going and they don't call back and you finally get a hold of them, is that they don't want to call back because things aren't going well, or what's the percentage? It it really varies. I mean, sometimes people don't call back because things are fine and they, you know, they're not concerned. Some, I mean, I've, we've had some issues where people were kind of in trouble hiding out, you know? I mean, that's how my terminology, my technical terms. (laughs) And, um, you know, and so we kind of had to track them down where their their advisors were having trouble tracking them down Mm -hmm. as well. So it really really kind of varies. But, But I think that, I also think that the assistant professors don't feel like they can tell me that things aren't going well. And so I have to try to do more to encourage them and say, you know, this isn't going to go anywhere. This is a, 
you know, it's not in your department. You really need to tell me. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're going to be stuck with somebody that's not working. So that's I have to do more to encourage them to be forthcoming. Okay, thank you. Yeah, this is a question for Faye. So you've been doing these short-time, very intensive interventions now for a while, and I'm wondering if you've seen changes associated with the rise of social networking, and this is related to the previous question as well. So now that people can remain connected more easily, or what do you see as as the as the potential for that? To well, I'd like to think that we're one little drop in a big ocean of change, but um, I don't know. There are some other people who, like me, are a little long in the tooth, and isn't it isn't the world better now than it was when we started? 35 or 40 years ago, it was, it is difficult now, but I feel like we've made a whole lot of progress. For example, it would have been really difficult for me when I was pregnant. Well, I did show up at meetings when I was pregnant, and I had people tell me, what are you doing what, you know, you're not allowed to be in this meeting. You're, you're pregnant. You, you know, maybe you're going to infect somebody or something. And, and the, the, kinds of, the kinds of problems, we're facing so many problems now. But I'd really like to think that the work that so many of us have been involved in has actually made a difference. It looks to me, when you look at the statistics of women, people of color in academe, And when you do informal surveys, it's hard now, but boy, it was really gruesome a while ago. And these kinds of interventions, you know, again, from year to year to year, I see Sheila nodding. From year to year to year, you might say, that's too small of a difference. I gave up my life for that. But look over the 20 years. It accumulates, and it makes a huge difference. In our Nags Heart Network, we, you know, I'm very happy. I have, and actually in Nags Heart we have four college presidents. We are really proud of that. They wouldn't have been college presidents 20 years ago, and now they are, so we're really happy. So thanks. Oh, okay. The Regent Ruiz is asking a question, so we're going to answer it. <laughs> Where's Dr. Fielder? He, he, uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, the comment or the statement, you know, from good to great, I, I think that's a very powerful uh, statement. And any organization that can bridge good to great, you know, is, uh, I think there's an incredible, lots of opportunities in that process. Can, uh, my question is, can we, can any of you quantify what great and good, the difference between the two, and maybe in terms of how did it make you a better organization? Did it were you able to to do a better job, uh, perform better? I'm just curious if you can give me some recommendations on that. So um, I don't know that I'm going to exactly speak to that, but in terms of like just the just the Council of Advisor program is really trying to say, look, we've made this investment in recruiting these assistant professors, and don't we owe it to to them and the institution to do everything we can to help them advance to tenure and beyond. So that's kind of the the measure of like why we're doing this and then what would be great is really seeing everybody advance. You know? That might be one way. 
I have a kind of a non-quantitative answer, and it comes out of uh, the oral arguments before the Supreme Court 10 years ago when affirmative action was before the court then, as it is again now with Fisher v. Texas. At that time, it was the University of Michigan cases, and the lawyer who was defending the University of Michigan, uh, Scalia was trying to skewer him, and Scalia was saying, Scalia-like, what do you mean? What's, what's enough? What's critical mass? Is it 10%? Is it 5%? Is it 3%? Is it 15%? And, he, and the lawyer answered, a critical mass is arrived when members of the numeric minority feel so safe that they will disagree with each other in the presence of members of the numerical majority. And that kind of disagreement is what diversity is all about, different points of view that come from our lived experience, and that makes us a better organization because we're free to say what we really think. So it's not exactly quantitative. I would resist the, if we get to 50% women, are we there? When we can, among any identified group, when we can disagree between ourselves in front of the majority group, we're there. We're safe. And when we're safe, it's a better organization. So I'm going to say I think that's a fabulous question, and I'd be a fool to try to improve on that answer. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.